Blog Talk Radio. The B I B I L E, that's the book for me. The B I B I L E, that's the book for me. sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and the Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free booklet by John called Found God's Peace. It's all about helping you defeat anxiety and know true and lasting contentment. Request your free booklet by writing to peace at gty.org. That's P-E-A-C-E at gty.org. Offer good in North America and Europe through June of 2017. And now, unleashing God's truth, one verse at a time, here's grace to you Bible teacher John MacArthur. John chapter 21, 
We have finally come to the last chapter, and it's, uh, it's going to be a brief time in this chapter because it's a rather simple and straightforward narrative. The body of this great epistle uh, concluded at the end of chapter 20 with verses 30 and 31. This is the epilogue as chapter 1 verses 1 to 18 was the prologue. Uh, chapter 1, 1 to 18, the prologue was the place where the Holy Spirit set forth what Christ was before He came from the Father to do His redemptive work. The epilogue in chapter 21 shows what Christ is after His redemptive work is done and as He prepares to return to the Father. So we have the before and after bracketing the life and ministry, redemptive work of Christ in the middle. There is in this chapter a clear testimony that Jesus is alive. In fact, at the end of uh, the first section, which is verse 14, it says this is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after He was raised from the dead. We'll get to that verse in a bit, but it reminds us that this is the focus of this chapter that Jesus is alive from the dead, and it is manifestly Jesus and no other. And the details of the narrative make that crystal clear. This is the final proof, if you will, that John gives us that Jesus came back to life after His death. But there are more things going on here than just that. If uh, John's Gospel ended in chapter 20 with verse 31, we would have some unanswered questions, uh, some very important unanswered questions. Uh, the first unanswered question would be this one, what was the relationship of the Lord Jesus to the disciples after His resurrection? What was it? And what do we know about it? What do we learn about it? And what did they learn about it? That's answered in the opening 14 verses, and we'll look at that this morning. There's a second question that importantly is answered here. What happens to the coward Peter who denied and fled and then wondered about the resurrection? Can we tie up the loose end of Peter? That's in verses 15 to 17. And then there is the question... What should the disciples expect in the future? What should they be anticipating? The answer to that comes in verses 18 and 19, and the answer is persecution, persecution. And then there was a floating question just kind of apparently moving around that John would never die. It was a rumor that John would never die, but he would live until Jesus returned? That question is answered in verses 20 to 23. And then another question is answered at the final two verses of this chapter. Why were not other things in Jesus' life recorded so that we have a full record? That's answered in verses 24 and 25. So John is tying up some loose ends to complete the story and answer all the remaining questions. And at the same time, he is showing us the risen Christ 
in some wonderful, wonderful positions and relations to his disciples. Now, for this morning, we're going to look at verses 1 to 14. So take your Bible and begin to direct your eyes toward that section. This answers the question, what will be the Lord's relationship to the disciples after the resurrection? Prior to the resurrection, He was their everything. Prior to the resurrection, He provided all that they needed on every level. In the upper room, the night before His death, He had promised them that He would continue to do that. He had promised them that whatever they asked, He would provide, that all of heaven's resources would be made available to them. They were fearful about it. They were doubting whether that was a reality. They were afraid that when He was leaving, they would not know where He was or how to get there. They were very insecure about the relationship they would have with Him in the future. Obviously, that was compounded by the fact that they couldn't grasp that the Messiah was actually going to die. Now they know He died, and now they know He rose, but the question still lingers, what can they expect from Him in the future? It can't be like it was when He was there every day providing everything they ever needed. Well, the answer to that question comes in these 14 verses, and this little account here in verses 1 to 14 demonstrates that the Lord is still compassionate, sympathetic, tender-hearted, loving toward His disciples. Even after His resurrection, even after He is glorified, He still takes a very personal, very practical interest in meeting their needs, which gives us the illustration post-resurrection that we need for the promises that also extend through them to us. We're going to look at this chapter and its historical character, particularly the opening 14 verses. But I also see behind the scenes, there's an inescapable spiritual lesson going on in this opening part of the chapter. It's, it's an inescapable lesson because it's exactly what is recorded here. You don't have to dig very deeply to, to see the difference between what happens when you disobey the Lord and what happens when you obey Him. That is illustrated here. We have in the opening five verses, disobedience. We have in the closing verses from 6 to 14, obedience. In the opening section, we have disobedience that results in failure. And failure that results in loss of fellowship. And then in the closing verses, we have obedience, which results in success which results in intimate fellowship with the Lord. These are inescapable realities that are right there for us to see in this wonderful account. So let's be looking at that as we listen to the story itself. Verse 1, After these things, Jesus manifested Himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and He manifested Himself in this way after these things indicates that this is supplemental, that this is, in fact, the epilogue. It's a, it's a break here. But exactly when, we don't know. Sometime between the eighth day 
when Jesus appeared to the apostles, and the 40th day when he ascended into heaven, this third appearance occurred, third as it's designated in verse 14. We know from Acts 1-3 that he was with them for 40 days. It doesn't mean that he was with them all 40 of those days because there are only three times that he appeared to them up to this incident, and this incident happened in Galilee. They had to go from Judea to Galilee, which could be a journey that might take them some time before they had seen him in Judea, in the upper room. Now they're in Galilee. They've been waiting a while for him. Finally, he makes an appearance. So to say that he taught them the things concerning the kingdom throughout a period of 40 days is not to say that it was all 40 days. Sometime between the 8th and the 40th day, Jesus manifested himself. He uses that term twice in verse 1, manifested, manifested. You have to understand this as a supernatural, sudden, startling appearance of Christ as if out of nowhere. The same way He appeared to those on the road to Emmaus, the same way He appeared to Mary Magdalene and the others, the same way He appeared to the apostles in the upper room, coming into the room and appearing instantaneously with the door shut and locked. He is now in His glorified resurrection form. He manifests Himself. And I remind you that even though He could be seen because He was alive physically, He was not known because His body was different. His glorified body was different. Mary Magdalene thought he was somebody else. He thought he was the gardener. The disciples on the road to Emmaus they had no idea who he was and not a glimpse, but rather a long, drawn-out conversation with him in the daylight and then in the house and around the table, and they still didn't know who he was. And here again, he appears, and they don't know who he is because they couldn't know who he was in the glorified form because the glorified form is so different he has to therefore disclose himself. He has to identify himself. And he does that on this occasion. His body is so different. It is, it is a body for eternity, not a body for time. It is a body for heaven, not a body for earth. So this time he manifests himself in Galilee by the Sea of Tiberias. Can I just comment on that? That is a lake, 12 miles long, about 7 miles wide, 650 feet below sea level in the northern part of the land of Israel, in the Galilee, surrounded pretty much by mountains on the west, north, and east. It is familiar in the Old Testament. It's called Kinneroth or Kinnereth or sometimes Gennesaret Lake. It is also the Sea of Galilee as we know it because it is in the region of Galilee. The Romans renamed it to honor Tiberius Caesar, and they called it the Sea of Tiberius. That is, it is its Roman name. Jesus had told the disciples to go to Galilee. Back in Matthew 28, after He had appeared to them from His resurrection, He said, you need to leave for Galilee, Matthew 28:10, And there you will see Me. You go to Galilee, you'll see me there. Verse 16, the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. So, they not only were told to go to Galilee, they were told to go to Galilee to a mountain. 
the very mountain Jesus designated. We don't know what it was, but perhaps it was what we know as the mountain where there was the Sermon on the Mount. We can't be certain about that, but that's one very near that slopes up from the sea to the north. The problem is, when this narrative opens, they aren't at the mountain. They're at the lake. So immediately we're confronted with their disobedience. They are not in the place He told them to be. They shouldn't have been where they were. Verse 2 introduces us to the disciples who are there. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel, and then the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and then the two others, most likely Philip and Andrew. So seven of them, I don't, I don't know where the other four are, but there were eleven with the absence of Judas now. I don't know where the other four are, but I'd like to think they were up in the mountain. And maybe they were the non-fishermen. As many of the disciples, as many as seven of them might have been fishermen. It is interesting that this is a pretty familiar group, at least six of them are, and Thomas gets thrown in here. We're, we're familiar with Peter and Nathaniel, James and John, Philip and Andrew, kind of the inner circle. Thomas the doubter is thrown in uh, to make the number seven. Why is Thomas with them? Because he wasn't with them once and he missed something really significant. He's not missing anything anymore. So wherever the leaders go, he goes. In fact, this is, the, this is the group, the six of them minus Thomas, this is the group that Jesus first called as His disciples back in chapter 1. This is the group that discovered they have found the Messiah. So we know them very well. Only Thomas is a stranger to the original group, and I told you why. Interestingly enough, this doubting Thomas and this denying Peter are the first two named. They're given prominence in the list, and that's an illustration of grace. Simon Peter, the denier, and Thomas, the doubter. Didymus means he was a twin. He had a twin. Well, they're up in the mountain for a while. We don't know how long. We don't have time indicators here. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And in the form of the original language, that's, that's the final statement. I'm going back to my old career. I'm going fishing. We know he was impetuous. We know he didn't have real patience for, for anything. He's not demonstrated as a man of patience. He's a man of action. And I know he was loaded with self-doubt because of his failures, which were epic, around the trial of Jesus. He was the one who kept denying, kept denying, kept denying on three different occasions, six times at least. He doesn't have any confidence in himself. He, it was to him that Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. He, uh, he was the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth. He had inserted it so many occasions that he had to have a familiarity with his own history. And I think as he's sitting there, remember now, they had been commissioned to be preachers. Back in chapter 20, verse 21, the Lord said to the disciples, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. I'm sending you. Sending you to do what? To, to be preachers, to be fishers of men. But Peter has self-doubt. Peter doesn't know what the future is going to bring. He, he doesn't 
yet none of them have received the Holy Spirit. So that hasn't occurred to give them power. They're, they're really unsure about what's going to happen. Peter proposes to go back to his career. When he says, I'm going fishing, he means I'm going back to what I used to do. So he disobeys. And he's a leader. So like rubber ducks, they all line up behind him. We will also come with you. They went out, out of the mountain, got into the boat, not a boat, the boat. And we know they were boat owners, and we know Peter had a boat because his boat is identified, and I'll show you that. I think he went back to his own boat and his own nets and his own paraphernalia, saying something like this, I don't know about this commission to fish for men. I do not know about this commission to go preach the gospel. I, I don't know about that. But one thing I can do, I can catch fish. They all said, we can too. We're going with you. And that night they caught nothing. So much for self-confidence. They had three years before been told that they were to drop their nets. Do you remember that? They were to drop their nets, stop fishing for fish, and start fishing for men. Luke 5, listen. Crowds pressing Jesus. He's on the edge of uh, the lake. He saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake. The fishermen had gotten out of them, washing their nets, so he got into one of the boats. The boat was Simon's boat. Got into Peter's boat and asked him to put out a little way from the land. He had to push off from the shore because the crowd was pressing him. And he needed a little distance, and the water is a pretty good conductor of voice. So when he had finished speaking from Peter's boat, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered him and said, Master, I need to inform you about fishing. We worked hard all night and caught nothing. This just doesn't make sense. I know you're not a fisherman, but I'm telling you, we've been there, done that. This is not a good time to fish. But, he says, I will do as you say and let down the nets. I'm going to go prove my point, that I know more about fishing than you do. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat, probably belonged to some of the other disciples, for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. He knew who he was dealing with. Lord, God. He saw his own wretched sinfulness. He was so sinful in the attitude that he had conveyed to the Lord. Amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And there were James and John and Peter. And then Jesus says to them in verse 10, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. When they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Now they're going to go catch men. Fast forward three years later, Peter's in the mountain, impatient, where's the Lord, self-doubt, he says, I'm going back to fishing. 
It's really an amazing thing to say, given that Jesus was alive from the dead. But he went back to his own career. And verse 3 tells us at the end, they caught nothing. Absolutely nothing. Over in verse 15, we'll get to this next week. Jesus says to Simon after breakfast, which comes in a minute or so, Simon, son of John, Jonas, do you love me more than these? These what? These men? No, these nets, these boats, these fish, this paraphernalia. This is about who you love. Do you love me more than these trappings that have been your life? Peter has to tell him three times, Lord, I love you, Lord, I love you. And essentially, he's trying to convince the Lord that he loves him when he hasn't demonstrated it because his disobedience militates against it. So here's the picture. If you step away from the calling God has placed on your life and go in the opposite direction, if you go the path of self-will and self-effort, you may think you can accomplish a lot, but you might end up a failure. Disobedience leads to failure. It's just a simple principle. When God calls you and gifts you and prepares you and places you into ministry in His kingdom, whether it's professionally or as a layperson, when you look at ministry opportunity and you turn your back and walk away from it, and if it's your gifts and your opportunity, you will fail at what you do. And that's exactly what happened here. The Lord does not reward disobedience. So, we come to verse 4. Day was breaking now, which means Peter's been trying to prove that he could catch fish all night. Kept going until daybreak. Jesus stood on the beach. Out of nowhere he appears. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus, and that fits every post-resurrection initial appearance of Jesus. They didn't know it was Jesus because it was an unfamiliar form. So this is so interesting. Jesus said to them, this is from Pice, best translation, guys, children in the broadest generic sense, indiscriminately, not my little children like John 13, not brothers like John 20. Guys. So what has happened here is their disobedience has led to failure and it has affected the relationship. He's now talking to them in less than endearing terms. He's talking to them in almost strange terms. As if they were strangers to him and he to them. He might say, if you were in England, lads. Not a term of endearment, not intimate. And here's the pattern that you see. Disobedience leads to failure and a breach in the relationship. Loss of the fullness of fellowship, intimacy. Back in John 14, our Lord had said a couple of times in that chapter, verse 21 and 23, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. That's what it, why it gets to love eventually in the chapter. 
If you love me, you obey me. Don't say you love me and don't obey me. If you love me, you obey me. If you obey me, then I empower you and you're successful and you enjoy my presence and fullness of joy in that relationship. But if you are in a pattern of disobedience, you're going to fail and you're going to lose that communion. So Jesus says to them, guys, you do not have any fish, do you? This is like rubbing it in after all night. What an irritating comment. And that's the best rendering of the Greek. He then rivets their attention to the fact that they have been disobedient. They have failed. And by the way, he had to speak fairly loudly from the shore because the boat is a hundred yards away. So he's actually shouting at them. You do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, no. You know, I think it's, it's good before the Lord provides graciously that we be made conscious of our failure, right? And articulate it and confess it and acknowledge it. He wants to hear them say, no, we have failed. This is where our impatience, our self-doubt, and our disobedience has led us. It has led us to failure, and we acknowledge it. It's a pretty simple question. You don't have any fish. They don't have any fish. No. So, this is their situation. Failure. And they have to admit it. They don't know who he is, and he talks to them as if they were just another group of guys fishing. Life can go this way pretty commonly to the disciples of Jesus, even today, even in this congregation. You have uh, been gifted. You have been called. You've been given spiritual opportunity. But instead of doing it, instead of following obediently what the Lord has laid before you to do, you uh, turn away from it. You go back to other things. The Lord is going to bless that. There's going to be a measure of failure, and you're going to lose that intimacy with Christ. As you step into the kingdom and the work of the kingdom and the things that He puts before you to do, whatever service that might be within His kingdom, whatever it might involve. As you do that, you find that He empowers and provides for your success, and you enjoy the sweet intimacy of fellowship. You might be wasting all of your energies on things that pass away, that are temporal, that are earthly, that have no eternal use at all. If that's the case, it's time for you to get involved in the business of fishing for men, kingdom business, whatever it is. Maybe you found yourself too busy to, uh, to teach a Sunday school class, too busy to be a part of Sundays morning and night at the church, too busy to pray, too busy to share in other people's lives, too busy to use your spiritual gifts. You're going to find yourself going down a path of failure and losing the joy of your intimacy with the Lord. So let's turn to the second part of the story then. They are failures and they acknowledge it. Peter thought he could do one thing for sure, and that's fish, and he can't. He can't anymore because the Lord won't let the fish go near his net. But we come from that to verse 6. We go from sort of self-effort to divine provision. He said to them, Cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll find a catch. Now, your first reaction is going to be, 
That is a really ridiculous command. Does he think we haven't tried both sides? Does he think the boat is stuck in one spot and it's not moving around? Does he think the fish know the difference? Does he... Does he but I will say this, the command was as compelling to them as it was to the fish. Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find a catch. You would say, what fool on the shore a hundred yards away would, would know that? No one would know that. But for some inexplicable reason, namely the authority of the Lord, verse 6 says, so they cast. And then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Again, it's like the Luke 5 situation. So here, against what seemed perhaps rational to them, they are compelled to obey the Lord and there is immediate success. In fact, the success is super abundant. And again, I just remind you, and this is just a simple illustration of the fact that when you obey the Lord, the Lord empowers the success. The Lord blesses, supplies, enriches. So they cast out the net. And by the way, I want to make a comment here. The Lord didn't say, okay, all you fish, jump in the boat. No, the Lord doesn't do that. God does His work by His power, but through His people. It's like the sword of the Lord in Gideon. The Lord's involved, but so are we. He always chooses means. God supplies our needs, but He also does it through our faithful work. Well, they got so many fish that it was shocking. And, of course, that this had happened three years earlier, so they knew who He was immediately. So now you know that this is the same Christ, risen from the dead, performing a miracle very much like at the beginning of His relationship with them. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, which is how John identifies himself, said to Peter, It is the Lord. It is the Lord. He's the one who commands the fish, and this is the, uh, post, the one post-resurrection miracle. Apart from walking through walls, which is simply the supernatural body of Christ and its capability. This is an actual miracle of controlling fish. And John says, it is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work. That means they, they wore just uh, something around their midsection while they were working, and he threw on his normal tunic, and it says that he threw himself into the sea. It, it's just, this is just such an interesting personality. I mean, there's very little thought about anything. He just says whatever comes to his head, and he just does whatever impulse drives him to do. He just throws on his thing and catapults himself into the water and leaves the other guys there with all this load of fish to figure out what to do. But there's something wonderful about Peter's eagerness to be near the Lord. It was like he was glad to be found out. He's in the water and he's swimming with his tunic on, and then he's wading, 
to the shore. He did love the Lord. He knew his own weakness. He knew his own frailty. And he couldn't get back to the Lord fast enough. He wanted forgiveness. He wanted restoration. And he gets it. We'll see that next time. The others, verse 8, come in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So they're trying to get the boat into the shore, and they're dragging this net full of fish. Peter's long gone. He couldn't care less about what happened when they were disobedient. He couldn't care less about anything but being with the Lord and being restored and convincing the Lord that He loved him, being with him. But the others bring the boat, verse 8, so when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus had made breakfast. You know how Jesus makes breakfast? Breakfast. That was a good breakfast, like the loaves and the fish in John 6. And here, the first question that I posed at the beginning is answered. What's going to be the relationship of Jesus post-resurrection to His disciples? He's going to be there to provide. He's going to be there to meet their needs. Even the simplest needs of their hunger, He's going to care for them. That's not going to change. Even though it's after the resurrection, even though He's in a glorified form, He will have the same compassion and care and make the same provisions for them that they've known Him to make. They get to shore. After fishing all night, they have to be famished. He's made a reasonable and incredibly wonderful breakfast for them, creating it out of nothing as He appeared out of nowhere. And then Jesus said to them in verse 10, "...bring some of the fish which you have now caught, because I know you're hungry." And uh, you're going to need more than is here, so you bring some of your fish and we'll also make them a part of this breakfast. And again, this is how the Lord works, isn't it? There are things that He does and there are things that we do. That's why I read that Philippians passage where it says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is the Lord who works within you to will and to do of His own good pleasure. It's the Lord working in us and it's us, us working the work of God in us out. Beautiful picture. He had made breakfast, but they were going to participate with what they had as well. The Lord will meet our needs, even our physical needs. Simon Peter then, verse 11, went up and drew the net to land. This is where he gets the term, the big fisherman. Years ago, there was even a book and a movie when I was a little kid called The Big Fisherman. I used to ask, why did everybody think Peter's big? This is it, right here. Because... Six guys have been dragging this thing in, the other disciples in verse 8. But in verse 11 it says, Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land, full of large fish. Large fish, a large fish in the Sea of Galilee. I've eaten those fish. Some of you have been there. They're now called St. Peter's fish. They weren't then, but they are now for obvious reason. Uh, they can get as big as two pounds plus. The number is fascinating to me. This is something Scripture does very frequently to let you know the reality of it. This isn't mystical. This is actually 153 fish times two pounds. 
you're looking at 300 pounds of fish and wet nets and paraphernalia, and this is where Peter gets the name Big Fisherman because he pulls it ashore by himself. He's a formidable guy. So he drags in 153 fish, and even though there were so many, too many for the nets to hold, the net was not torn, which is another part of the miracle. So they finally arrived. They're all on the beach. The fish have all been pulled up. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. It's just something so normal about that. He doesn't say, come and let me explain my supernatural body. He doesn't say, let me tell you how I telegraph myself through space. Hey, let's have breakfast. Just something so normal about that, which is to say that the Lord cares that we have breakfast, that He's going to be there to meet our needs. They're sitting at breakfast with Him, and He's eating again, which tells us His body has that capability. We already saw that earlier the first day He appeared. None of the disciples ventured to question Him, who are you, knowing it was the Lord. They all knew. They all knew. And then this is so amazing. Verse 13. Jesus came and took the bread, gave it to them, and the fish likewise. He was their waiter. They're sitting down eating, and He's waiting on them. You want to know what His relationship is going to be to His disciples in the future? He's going to provide everything they need and serve them. He's going to be the one who waits on them. Yeah, we have plain proof of the risen Christ. But the risen Christ is not some detached, ethereal being. The risen Christ can sit down and have breakfast with His disciples. And more importantly, He's not all of a sudden disinterested in them because He's back in His heavenly mode and they don't matter anymore. He makes sure they have breakfast and He serves it to them. So when somebody asks you what is the current relationship of the Lord to His people, here it is. So verse 14 wraps it up by saying this is the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after He was raised from the dead. Third time to the inner circle. First five times that He appeared happened on the first day, resurrection day. He appeared to Mary Magdalene, the other women, Simon Peter, the two on the road to Emmaus, and that evening, the ten apostles. A week later, ten plus Thomas. That's the second appearance. Day one, day eight, and then this one sometime in that 40-day period. And what did they learn this time? Obey, God provides, and you have intimate fellowship with Him. Do you see that? That's, that's the model here. When they obeyed, they were successful, and they communed with Christ in a personal way. The most blessed breakfast, I'm sure, they could ever have had. You can live your life either way, disobedience, failure, and loss of fellowship, or obedience, success, and the richness of fellowship. Our Lord will meet all your needs if you're faithful to obey His Word, and you'll enjoy the fellowship with Him. Father, we thank You again this morning for the opportunity we have had to glimpse our blessed Savior again in His glory. We acknowledge again that 
we wander off in our own direction. We, we who have been called to be fishers of men, as we all have, the Great Commission comes to all of us, can become so preoccupied with things in the world that we fail to acknowledge the command that you give us. Lord, help us to be obedient and in our obedience to enjoy your power and your provision and your presence. That is our desire. Lord, I pray now for those who have no relationship with you, those who have turned their back on you, those who have rejected the gospel, those who have denied your lordship, those who have chosen to be enemies of God, those who have been consequently sentenced to eternal punishment and judgment. I pray, Lord, that you will awaken their minds to the truth, that you will show them the glory of Christ, that they will come to him as the only Savior, the only Redeemer, the only one who can rescue them from judgment. I pray, Lord, that many who hear this message here, this very day, will confess that Jesus is the risen Lord, believe in their heart that you raised him from the dead, and receive the gift of salvation. We know that's what you promise. Do that work, we pray, for your glory. Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website, gty.org. And for details about the Masters University where John serves as president, go to masters.edu. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file. My God is so big and so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. My God is so big and so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. My God is so big and so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. My God is so big and so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. In the beginning, God made everything. 
stretching like a moldy piece of bread. We act as if the holy word of God is all but dead. All we need to know is right there on the pages. Why are we obsessed with who the guy on stage is? Oh uh-huh. 
And now from Wretched, this is from the YouTube page, Teenagers Who Refuse to Go to Church. Here on Trippy Tori. This is a good one, is it not? From Caspar? Casper. The friend? This is from Casper. The teenage child refuses to go to church. This is a dilemma. Not just Casper has with his child. This is pretty commonplace, those little rebels. Here's what Casper wrote. What if your teenage child refuses to go to church? Because at this point, they merely say they don't believe in the message being displayed. Time out, that's a blessing. At least you know what you got before they fly the coop, and then you read their Facebook status, and it says, religion, none. So it's good to know now. That actually is on your side, Dad. Do they have the right as teenagers, or do they have to go if your church is going as a family because it's your rules, your house, your decision, or does freedom of expression apply here? Actually, what applies here is the very same thing that we were just talking about. Let me, your rules, your house, your decision. This is how we typically deliver that truth. Hey, my house, while you're still living under my roof, you're going to abide by my rules. That is not how we should engage with our child. Instead, you can toe the line. There are rules. We're a Christian family, and God has charged me, honey, to teach you the discipline, the admonition of the Lord, and to not forsake the assembling of the saints. Therefore, a house rule based on God's commands to me and to you, we're a family that's going to go to church. Now, I understand you don't like church very much, and I want to share with you how much that, that troubles me and makes me sad, not because of our family reputation, not because I just think you're missing out and you can make some friends. I'm concerned because the Christian loves the local body, the Christian loves church, which tells me, with the attitude that you have, your soul is in danger. Honey, we need to talk about your sins some more, and we need to talk about the Savior some more, so that you can repent, put your trust in Jesus Christ, and love the body. Well then, that's a little bit of a different way to engage, but it is the way we should all engage every single time with our kids. Once again, that's from Wretched, W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D. And find out on YouTube and also Wretched.tv, Wretched.tv website. Let's see. Let's go do another one from Wretched. This is Give Kids Hell Before You Offer Heaven here on Tributory. Before you offer heaven to your children, you must talk to them about hell. There's something extremely comfortable about talking about heaven. I mean, there are a plethora of books, there are oodles of movies, and there are countless sermons dedicated to the topic. There isn't much friction when you talk to someone about the glories of heaven, and we should talk about it. But before you give people heaven, you've got to give them the reality of hell. In order for the good news to make sense, people have to be confronted with the bad news first. 
like the guy who walked into his friend's house after walking by the department store window and seeing a vase displayed for $9.99, goes into his friend's house, sees the same vase sitting on a stand, picks it up, checks it out, slips through his fingers, falls, crashes. There's a bit of panic at first, but then he remembers the cheap face he saw in the department store window, and he thinks, oh, no problem. His friend comes out. His face is as white as a sheet, and his friend says, hey, man, man, no, don't worry about it. I saw it in the department store window. I'll buy you two of them. He says, no, you have no idea what you just did. That was no cheap 9.99 imitation face. That was an original $100,000 family heirloom that you just destroyed. All of a sudden, he comes to the realization of what he just did, and it hits him hard. That's what we have to do as sinners. We have to help them to recognize that there is a holy God that they've offended, that there is a day of judgment coming where they will face his wrath. And then after that, we can give them the truth of the gospel and the good news of everlasting life. In that order, the laws of God, hell created by God for those lawbreakers, the good news of the offer of heaven, then the good news of everlasting life, then the good news of adoption and glorification and fixed thinking and joy and peace and a cleansed conscience. We can tell our children about all of the magnificent fruits of the gospel. But it is at this point we need to be careful. This is not to suggest we don't talk about all of the wonderful benefits in the gospel, but we need to make sure that we present the gospel not as a series of benefits, but the gospel that points to a God who is so amazing. Our kids want him, not just the things that he offers. Someone was to ask you, what are the benefits to being a Christian? What would you say? Well, I can say I have a peace that passes all understanding, a peace that I didn't have in the world. I have a joy that's unspeakable. It's so wonderful, I can't even express it. I have a knowledge of everlasting life. Death holds no sting for me. But make sure you don't use those benefits as a draw card for people to come to Christ because you'll mess up their motive. The reason we come to Christ is because we're criminals. We have violated God's law, and we desperately need his mercy. So preach the law. Preach future punishment and tell sinners they need to repent and trust Christ because God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. And once they come to Christ, they can experience the benefits that come with being a Christian. Whatever you do, don't use the fruits of salvation as a draw card for salvation. Hmm. I wonder how Ray Comfort's son-in-law might present that same information. We often hear people say, come to Jesus and your life will get better. Come to Jesus and all your problems will go away. Come to Jesus and experience your best life now. That's not the truth. We have to give people the truth that they need to come to Jesus because he's their only hope. They need to come to Jesus because they're under the wrath of a holy God whom they've offended. Of course, the fruits of salvation are legitimate, but they shouldn't be our draw card. We need to preach the truth that men are sinners, that God is holy, but this holy God is a loving, merciful, gracious God willing to set sinners free if they come his way and on his terms. 
now we know. So how does the Christian parent make that distinction for their children? That is a very fine line, but a line we must draw. As you talk to your child about the laws of God, the holiness of God, you're raising him up high that your child might be brought down low so that they can see the great gap between God, their maker, and themselves, the cosmic rebels. Then when we proclaim the gospel that Jesus Christ took the wrath that you deserve, your God should punish you, but your God bruised his only son on your behalf. We share that good news, and we can even share all of the good things that come from it, while at the very same time threading the needle to explain, but you want to be coming to Jesus because of all of these things, not coming to Jesus because of all of these things are your heart's desire. Do you hear the difference? It might sound something like this. Honey, now that we've looked at the laws of God, you're a wicked sinner. Jesus is an amazing Savior. The gospel, it just keeps flowing with gift after gift. God wants to take you and cleanse you and fix you and change your emotions and give you peace and joy and a hope for the future. And oh, what a hope for the future we have. You, when you die, in a twinkling of an eye, will be in the presence of God. And you, one day, will receive a glorified body. That's how good Jesus is. That's how much he offers you. Why? Because he's that amazing. Come to Jesus because he's that good. If you and I don't carefully make the distinction, as opposed to saying something like, oh, Honey, the gospel, it's amazing. Now you get love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Do you want those things? Of course you want those things. So come to Jesus. Do you hear the difference? The former presentation leads your child to seeing Jesus as the most desirable entity in the universe. The latter model points us toward benefits perks, the gifts that he offers his children. Talk about the gifts, but use the gifts to make him sound great so that they desire him and not just the stuff he offers. Once again, that's from Wretched. It's called Give Your Kids Hell Before You Offer Heaven. That's um, from the YouTube page. You can also see him on wretched.tv, W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D.tv, wretched.tv. And next going to do from, this is from W-W-U-T-T, what? When we understand the text, and that is on YouTube and also www.utt.com. This is about the immaculate conception with the question mark. Good 
It's often assumed that the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception refers to Jesus. After all, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, making him unblemished by the stain of sin, that is, immaculate. However, that's not the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. It doesn't refer to Jesus at all. It refers to Mary. The Immaculate Conception is a Roman Catholic doctrine stating that the Blessed Virgin Mary from the first instant of her conception was preserved free from all stain of original sin. In fewer words, Mary was sinless, but this is a false doctrine not found in Scripture. The Bible says all have sinned, and Jesus himself said there is no one good but God. After Mary had given birth to Jesus, Joseph took them to the temple to offer a sacrifice of two turtle doves or two young pigeons, according to the law. We read in Leviticus 12 that after a mother is given birth, she is to go through a time of purification. After those days are completed, she is to bring to the priest a lamb for a burnt offering and a pigeon or turtle dove for a sin offering. If she can't afford a lamb, then she is to take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. The priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. This is exactly what we see Joseph and Mary doing in Luke 2, 22-24. Mary wouldn't have needed to do this if she was sinless. Though Joseph and Mary were too poor to afford a lamb, they did have one with them, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. The Bible says only Jesus was without sin, when we understand the text. And now, from see, this is Go Fish with Before the Throne of God here on Trip Victoria. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Oh 
that of Haiti, the largest, most powerful earthquake in the region's history. The federal judge's ruling is allowed to stand. This year's National Day of Prayer could likely be the country's last. I will be done.
Oh, 
about it for our show. And I'll go out with Yancy and friends of BWE. And until next time, bye for now.